hey, thanks for coming to my party. Here's a 12 to 15 year commitment <laughs> of thousands of dollars per year. They're like you're going to have to hire dog walkers and vet bills and do- the cost of dog food and like all of the accoutrements that come with having a dog. I mean, this is not a cheap endeavor. My question is, what if there were a couple of, I don't know, cat people who were at the party <laughs> and were not interested in taking a dog? Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. Last week we did kind of a downer episode on Bowling for Columbine and some statistics on guns. So we thought this week, let's turn a total 180 and do something really funny and hilarious. So we are talking about the movie Bridesmaids today, which is a raunchy, crazy comedy, which both of us really love. Yeah, I didn't realize before doing this episode that Judd Apatow's most successful box office movie was Bridesmaids. Yeah, it just absolutely crushed it at the box office, and it's easy to see why. I mean... The hilarity just basically never stops. And it's also a little bit heartwarming and sweet. It's mostly focusing on this great friendship between these two women. They've been friends since they were kids. So yeah, it's just an awesome feel-good story with lots of crazy, ridiculous, raunchy comedy thrown in. Did you know that Melissa McCarthy was nominated for an Oscar for that movie? I sure did. I had zero idea. I did not (laughs) know that was a thing. I'm such a fan of Melissa McCarthy. I've been a huge fan of hers since her Gilmore Girls days when she played the awesome Suki St. James. And she just kills it as Megan in this movie. Just, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm ever not laughing when she's on screen. So she she just knocks it out of the park. And you knew that uh, the, the guy who plays Air Marshal John is her real life husband? Oh, yeah. Ben Falcone, I think is his name. I believe that's right. Yeah. They were also um, featured together in the show Nine Perfect Strangers, which was also pretty good. I just basically love anything with Melissa McCarthy in it. She can do no wrong in my eyes. Well, did you know that her role of Megan, uh, Rebel Wilson, tried out for that role and was not awarded it, but she did such a great job in her audition. She impressed Apatow and and the whole team enough. I think she did like an hour of improv in her audition, and they were just like, wow, this lady's great. Uh, She got her first gig in America playing uh, her character... Britta or Brenna, whatever her character's name is on the show. I think it's Bren. But Bren. yeah, I, yeah, I honestly had forgotten that she was in it until we started rewatching it. She has kind of a minor role, but she does a good job with that minor role. So yeah, I don't think we would have had Pitch Perfect if not for this, you know, opening experience. Yeah. You know, it was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. So that was a, a big nod. Kristen Wiig and her real life friend, Annie Mumolo who, fun fact, plays the nervous flyer that Kristen Wiig sits next to on the airplane, in the airplane scene. Um, They co-wrote the screenplay and obviously just did a stellar job with it, and it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. I read that it took them nine years to put the screenplay together, that they've been working on it off and on for, like, forever, basically. Interesting. Well, hard work pays off, I guess. It's a huge blockbuster hit. So we got a lot of good clips 
to delve into for this film. And I mean, money is basically like the lifeblood of this movie. It's the theme that's running throughout the course of it. So let's go ahead and jump into a brief plot summary, and then we can go ahead and dive into our first clip. So as the title indicates, the movie is about a wedding. So Maya Rudolph plays um, Kristen Wiig's longtime best friend. And early in the movie, Maya Rudolph gets engaged. And the rest of the movie is kind of about the whole experience of being a bridesmaid. And Maya Rudolph had recently made a new friend named Helen, who's played by Rose Byrne. And Rose Byrne's character is fabulously wealthy. There seem to be no limits to what this woman can afford. And Kristen Wiig's character is very, very poor. She works in a jewelry store. Actually, at one point, we see a paycheck, what appears to be a paycheck, from her employer for $350. Now, I don't know if that's a weekly paycheck. Maybe it's some kind of a commission check. Um, you would think she's got to be making more than $700 a month for that to be like a bi-weekly paycheck. But clearly, she's not making a lot of money and is really struggling to get by. And as so many people out there listening, I'm sure know, being a bridesmaid can be very expensive. So it's kind of about this struggle between Kristen Wiig and Rose Byrne, the very wealthy character and the very poor character. Indeed. Yeah, I, I think it's just a funny story, right? It's a, it's like a raunchy comedy, rom-com combo. Yeah, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah, it came out in 2011, so it's been 11 years since it first hit theaters. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and give it a rewatch. Certainly, if you've never seen it, definitely get yourself to the nearest television and watch this movie. It is really, really well done. Agreed. Well, do you want to jump into our first clip uh, where the bridesmaids are looking at dresses together to figure out what they're going to wear on the big day? Yeah, let's take a listen to just how expensive this whole process is going to be. Welcome to heaven. Oh, man. This is some classy shit here. <laughs> Jesus, Megan. I'm sorry, I want to apologize. I'm not even confident of which end that came out of. Whitney, back to you. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, take a look around. Get to know the dresses. If you need anything, I'll be in my office. Have fun. Oh, my God. It's a Fritz Bernays. Oh Ladies, I... I just don't think we can do any better. This is, this is beautiful. That is gorgeous. Uh, it's unique. It's special. It's couture. This is made in oh France. Oh, this is um, this is eight hundred dollars. Are you kidding? It's on sale. Oh my gosh! Are you serious? serious? It's, it's, the it's on sale. <laughs> so the place that they went to was you could only get in if you had a reservation, which that's not the kind of store I want to be shopping in. Very, very true. <laughs> totally agree. Um, yeah, so they're in this really classy joint, as you hear Melissa McCarthy say before she makes this crazy noise coming out of which end, we don't know. But So let's back up a little in the plot. So the whole crew, the bride-to-be and all of her bridesmaids, had just eaten lunch at a Brazilian steakhouse. Um, and it was kind of in a not-super-nice part of town and looked pretty run down on the outside. And all of these people... Like show up there and their Kristen Wiig's character had chosen the restaurant and everyone's looking at her like, what kind of dump did you bring us to? 
And then Maya Rudolph, her friend, comes to her rescue and she's like, guys, trust me, Kristen Wiig is so good at this kind of stuff. She always picks the best places. The food's going to be great. And then like a couple, two, three hours later, they're at this super fancy place and things do not go well <laughs> gastronomically for these gals uh, in this um, super high-end dress shop. Yeah, I think this is the epitome of the raunchy comedy part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the dining experience that they had, I don't think it would have, be, have been likely to lead to food poisoning the way it was presented. I'm sure it was in some place that was next to a check cashing establishment or something like that. But I don't know. The, the food looked reasonable and decent to me. It's a restaurant that existed. It was in a, I think it was in a standalone building. I mean, it wasn't too terrible. I don't know. So the cost of going to a Churrascaria, you know, the Brazilian steakhouse kind of place, places like Fogo de Chao or Texas de Brazil or Radizio Grill. There's a handful of chains that exist all around the country that offer this kind of thing. And uh, the food is usually excellent and the service is great. And it's a, it's a fun time. The, the, the normal meal there is going to cost you between, let's say, 45 and $65, depending on which of the fancy ones you're at and, and how nice it is and where you are in the country. But that's kind of like a reasonable estimate for just the base you know, buffet, right? That you get the salad bar, you get all the meats brought to you. If you want any drinks, it'll be more than that, of course. And you'd obviously need to, to tip your servers and pay taxes on top of that. But that's kind of the normal gateway price. I was looking online trying to find uh, any kind of a discount Churrascaria. It's pretty hard to find one that's particularly cheap. What's funny, now living in Colorado, I did a Google search for discount Churrascaria, and the only one that came up was one that we've been to in Irving, uh, in Texas. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's like Villa del Brazil or something like that. I do remember that place. Yeah, it uh, and it was it was inexpensive. I think it was under thirty dollars, like twenty eight or twenty nine bucks a plate. But it was the same kind of experience, just with fewer options. I kind of think what they showed in Bridesmaids was almost that same kind of place. It was. It was lower end and the options were much more limited. Like the salad bar was way crummier. Like the salad bar at, at Texas Day Brazil or Fogo de Chao is, it's intense, right? Yeah, like, it's way more than a salad bar. Yeah. There's so many things for offer there. Yeah, like I, I mean, I avoid it because I'm there for the meats, right? Like what a waste of time to go get all the fancy other things that they have to offer for you. But if you're into that, in one of these lower end establishments, that's probably what you're going to have less of. And you'll have fewer meat options as well, but I... I think at the the place we went to in Irving, they had like picanha and some of the other nicer cuts as well. At the same time, it was it wasn't that bad. Yeah. I was happy. We should say Irving is a suburb outside of Dallas where we used to live. Um, yeah, so we went because we are frugal and we don't like to spend like sixty dollars per person uh, when we go out to dinner. But we also really really like Brazilian steakhouses, so we found that place and we went there a handful of times. Um, and it, I mean, we certainly never got food poisoning yeah. and it, you know, tasted just fine. And I mean, it tasted great as I recall. So I wouldn't these... be afraid to go try on dresses after I ate at that place. <laughs> yeah, nor would I, uh, I think these people are just kind of being a little bit snooty that it's not in a very nice area, but sometimes, I mean, I think just as Maya Rudolph points out, some people are really good at finding these kind of hole in the wall places that turn out to have fabulous food. And Kristen Wiig's character had eaten there in the past and never gotten sick. So, you know, every time you eat out anywhere, no matter how nice the place is, every time you eat anything, something you're making at home, you always run some small risk that there's going to be like a listeria outbreak or 
We're going to get salmonella because you didn't quite cook it through as perfectly as you should have. So eating is inherently carries a tiny, tiny risk at all times, I think. So they have their dinner or lunch, whatever, and they, they somehow get in without a reservation because Helen, the, the rich friend, knew somebody who worked there and was able to get them in to go look at these dresses. And she found a Fritz Bernays for only $800. Oh my gosh, it's on sale. No. Yeah, it's so, so expensive. So this can be one of the really difficult parts about being a bridesmaid is you're asked to pony up for a lot, a lot of things, right? You're being asked to buy your own dress, um, oftentimes shoes that go with it, oftentimes hair and makeup. They like provide the person and they want everyone to look uniform. So you're supposed to be paying for your hair and makeup. Um, Not to mention things like bachelorette parties, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Gifts for the bridal shower, gifts for the actual wedding. Um, I mean, it can really, really add up, especially if you're doing it in like a kind of a high-end, fancy way. So it's definitely a big ask for a lot of people. Now, the average bridesmaid's dress is not nearly as expensive as what we see in the movie. Six hundred dollars. Average bridesmaid's dress is about a hundred and fifty dollars. Wow, that's even more than I would have guessed. Which I, I mean, I actually felt like that was fairly reasonable based on some of my own experiences. Um, but yeah, it can be very, very pricey. And if you have someone who has super high-end taste, it can be really hard to pull aside the bride and be like, "Look, I just straight up can't afford this." And that was true for Kristen Wiig. We talked about that $350 paycheck that we see from her. We're talking like multiple paychecks for her that are going completely towards this one dress that she's going to wear one time that she probably can't resell. I mean, it's an enormous investment. So it's uh, definitely something that brides should keep in mind to be cognizant of their bridesmaids financial situations and try not to stress that too much. Yeah, I think it is 100% the bride's responsibility if she's going to go ask people to participate in this expensive endeavor on her behalf to be pretty reasonable and responsible about what you're asking someone to do and to make sure that that fits inside of their lifestyle and it's realistic and it's not a sacrifice that is just absurd or ridiculous. However, not everyone is that conscientious or is that capable of analyzing that sort of situation themselves. Many people would happily go into debt to participate in someone else's wedding and would expect their friends to do the same. So let's say you are a bridesmaid with a bride who is not so conscientious and they're trying to get you to buy an $800 Fritz Bernays that's multiple paychecks for you. What what do you do? I mean, I think I would have had a private conversation with her, especially, I mean, in the movie, these two women are portrayed as having a really great close friendship. And Maya Rudolph knows pretty well, like what's going on with Kristen Wake's life. She recently tried to start a business to open her own bakery. It did not go well. She lost a lot of money and Maya Rudolph knows all of that. So I would just be pretty open with her and say, look, I just, I straight up can't do this. Should you like not be part of the wedding party? Is that the approach that you might need to take if if it's that bad? I mean, I would be willing to to say that to a bride that, you know, if this is what it's going to take, I just can't fit it in my budget. And I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to bow out. Um, Hopefully no bride would be willing to lose their closest friend over something as silly 
as what kind of dress they were going to wear. Um, but I don't know. People get pretty intense about that kind of stuff. Well, it's one thing to say, it's okay. I know we're asking more than you can give to be part of the bridal party. That doesn't mean you can't be friends anymore. Yeah, no, it's very true. I don't, I don't want to sound like I think I'm some sort of saint here, but, um, we actually, we paid for our bridesmaids dresses and they were not terribly expensive either, but it just felt wrong to be like, look, you're coming here on this day and you're going to wear this thing and you're going to pay for it. And I don't mean to suggest that it's like an awful thing for other people to do. Um, because most of the time it's a give and take, right? Like I get married, you're doing this for me on my day. And then later on you'll get married and I'll do it for you on your day. And I think that's totally fine. But also, you know, friendships come and go over the years and someone who was in your wedding, you may not necessarily be in theirs like 10 years later or whatever it might be. I mean, if you're that gal from 27 dresses, it's so expensive. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's a big ask and brides should be very, very conscious of that. Agreed. Well, we mentioned the cost of dresses, and that's obviously a big part of being in a bridal party that uh, is is an expense that has to be dealt with. Another thing that is often a popular accompaniment to weddings is bachelor and bachelorette parties. And Kristen Wiig's character had some responsibility for planning the, the bachelorette party, and it didn't sound like her plans were in alignment with the rest of the crew. Hello? I just got your email. Um, Lake House? Yeah, um... Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's Lillian's parents' house. We used to go there all the time in the summers and everything. And it's, it's one of her... Bachelorette in a cabin? Oh, wait, uh, can you... Can, hold, hold that thought. Hold on. Uh, hello? Annie. Yeah? I'm so excited. Helen just called. She said we can go to Vegas. You know, just, yeah, but we have to... We have to fly there. Can you just hold on for one second? Oh, sure, 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 oh, sure. Thanks, sure. Hold Take on. your time. I got... Hello? Hey, Annie, it's Megan. Oh, hey. Just, uh... Had some thoughts about the bachelorette party. Okay. Here we go. Easy peasy. Vegas it is. Helen called you, didn't she? Yeah, she got the jump on you. Everybody wants to go to Vegas. Man, so I think that Annie's idea, Kristen Wiig's character, she just had this lovely idea. They were going to go have this like nice weekend at a lake house, just the girls having fun, everybody catching up, going swimming, I don't know. Sounds like a heck of a nice weekend to me, but I acknowledge I'm kind of anti-Vegas. Vegas kind of represents everything I do not enjoy about life. So I uh, I acknowledge that I'm very biased here, but to me, it sounds like Annie just had this wonderful idea and just think about all the expenses that they would have been saving by doing it this way, right? Presumably this lake house is local. There's no airfare. It's owned by the bride's parents, so you're not going to have any hotel cost, and you're not going to be eating out at super expensive restaurants. You're not going to be buying drinks out. You're not going to be paying like table fees or whatever you pay. And like no bottle service at the cabin, huh? That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, Yeah, you're not going to have any of that. You're not going to be going to like expensive shows that Vegas has to offer. So maybe to some people, that's like, wah, wah, as you're listing all the fun things that I want to go do, and it's not worth it to me to save the money. Like, I'd rather go do all these things. That's obviously what all these other bridesmaids characters in the movie are saying. But they stand to save a boatload by doing it Annie's way. So, I mean, what do bachelor and bachelorette parties cost people these days? Like, what are the numbers on that? So if you look this up, the internet will tell you that the average cost of a bachelor or bachelorette party 
is about $350, which makes sense because most bachelor bachelorette parties are local. It's just people going out for like some kind of a pub crawl kind of night. Maybe you rent like a party bus or something, but that's really the extent of it. So that makes sense that it's generally, you know, relatively inexpensive. I would guess that that's probably pretty close to what these gals would be spending if they were going to the lake house, right? You're buying booze for the weekend, nice food to celebrate with, and, you know, uh, gas money to get back and forth, which with today's gas prices would be not insignificant. Um, but yeah, that, that to me feels, I mean, that's a lot for a night out, but it's not like a crazy sum of money. If they were going to go to Vegas, the average cost of a trip to Las Vegas for one person is between like $1,700 and $2,000. So that's airfare, hotel, gambling food, losses, eating out. <laughs> I actually don't think they included gambling losses, which is another factor, but that's a really substantial savings that you would be making by not going to Vegas. Yeah, and it seems like Annie can't afford this no matter what. Kristen Wiig's character just doesn't have the money to go to go do that kind of a party and that kind of thing. Um, why why do we do bachelor and bachelorette parties, right? <laughs> like it, it's sort of this thing like, oh no, it's your last chance, your your last moment of freedom. But in, in the modern world, you usually have been dating this person for a while. There's been an engagement. You know each other. You probably practically live together if you don't already live together. Like, What is the substantial change that happens at the point of marriage that causes people to want to just blow it out like that? I mean, hopefully you and your friends still do all kinds of fun stuff together. You can still take fun trips together without your spouse. Is, am I wrong? No, I think that's totally right. And I've always been kind of puzzled by and kind of angered by this like a last chance mentality that people seem to have when it comes to bachelor and bachelorette parties. I mean, hopefully you're entering into a partnership with someone whose company you genuinely enjoy and who you want to do lots of things with, but you have a healthy enough relationship that you're not like tied at the hip all the time. And one of you can go off and do something fun with another group of people or on their own or whatever they want to do. And it's not like a relationship ending thing to have somebody go off and do something on their own. Yeah. It just seems kind of bizarre to me that we make such a big deal about like your last chance to go out with your gal pals. I mean, good Lord. Like what kind of marriage are you entering into that you would think of it that way? Maybe people just like wearing those penis hats or whatever else you get. Oh Yeah. Gotta have a penis hat. I don't know. I guess it's it's mostly just an excuse to celebrate, which I get. Like, you know, celebrating is fun. People like it. But I, ju I just don't like that approach to it of like, you can never do this again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just so silly. Yeah. Hopefully after your marriage, you still have the opportunity to spend time with, with, with friends and, and you're not just stuck locked inside your home and never to be seen again. Yeah. It's that, you know, people make that joke about the old ball and chain. I think in both directions, I think it was usually more applied to the woman than the man. But I mean, that's just awful. If you think of your spouse as a ball and chain in any way, shape or form, you need to pick a better spouse. Yeah. Do better. Yeah. So Annie loses. Kristen Wiig's plan at the lake house is defeated. They are going to go to Vegas and they have to fly there which is not her favorite thing to do. And she's not rich. 
she doesn't get a first class ticket like her friends do. And she's a little bit jealous. So it leads to this awesome scene on the airplane where Kristen Wiig is trying to sneak up into first class to be with the rest of her friends from back in coach. And she is also, because she's afraid of flying, she's taken some kind of like a Xanax or something. And so she's feeling a little loopy. So it leads to this hilarious scene. Miss, you cannot be up here. Hello, Grandpa. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just want to be here with my friends because I'm with this group. Um, the sign just went off. Can't she stay up here for like a minute? Uh, absolutely stop? not. Coach passengers are not allowed up here in first class. Really? It's policy. I'm sorry. Oh, this is a very, this is a very strict plane that I'm on. Sir, she can have my seat, okay? Everyone should experience first class at least once in their lives, and Annie shouldn't miss out just because she can't afford it. No, ma'am, I'm afraid that's not allowed. Help me, I'm poor. It's <laughs> great. So flying first class is definitely a premium. Flying first class out of Milwaukee to Vegas? So it's interesting. Milwaukee... Looking at it right now, maybe this is different in 2011, but in 2022, if you want a direct flight from Milwaukee to Vegas, like you're not flying on an airline that has first class, <laughs> right? I think the only airlines that seem to offer that were Frontier, Southwest, and uh, Spirit. Beyond mm-hmm. that, you got to stop somewhere. So, but if you were going to fly first class from Milwaukee to Vegas with your one stop flight on somebody like United, you were probably going to pay at least double for a first class ticket. Uh, from, you know, seven or eight hundred bucks to to about fifteen hundred or more wow. uh, for the first class ticket. That's a lot. Um, if you don't want to fly out of Milwaukee because your options are pretty terrible, you could just drive like a little over an hour, an hour and a half down to O'Hare in Chicago, and get you know a traditional economy ticket for four hundred bucks. Way better options there. Direct flight, probably a smarter path anyway. Um, however, if you're going to fly out of O'Hare you're going to have a bigger premium on the first class ticket. It's probably going to be two and a half to three times the price. Gosh. But but the economy ticket's a lot cheaper. So, so I've flown first class a few times um, for work. Usually I was flying with somebody else who had like enough status to get me upgraded or something along those lines. So I've done it a handful of times and it's nice. No one could pretend that it's not. You have a lot more room. You don't feel like you're packed in in a sardine can. But to me, it seems like a very poor use of funds, especially if you've got relatively limited funds to be paying like two or three X what you could otherwise be paying to sit like five feet back and get to the exact same destination and just have a little bit more room to like spread your arms out a little bit for four or five hours, whatever it is. Yeah. The only time I've flown anything better than what's economy plus where you get a few extra inches of leg room uh, was for work. And it was an amazing experience, not because the flight was amazing, but because I felt like I was the luckiest kid around Um, that our national director of engineering and I, and one of our vice presidents were all traveling back together. Uh, We had a, a selection interview for some project and there was weather somewhere and our flight got canceled. And so we all drove from uh, wherever we were to Indianapolis and got on a flight together. And we were some of the last seats on the plane. And this our national engineering director got an upgrade to first class. Well, in the car that we had rented to get over there to Indianapolis, we were talking about flights. And somehow it came up that I had never flown first class. And he got this surprise upgrade and gave it to me. And so 
actually what we did is we traded seats in the way that they said it's forbidden to do here. He boarded with his first class ticket and went and sat in my seat. And then I boarded with my, you know, back of the plane ticket, sat in his seat. And they called me by his name the whole time uh, on the plane, which was interesting and amusing. <laughs> um, so it made me feel really good. He's an awesome guy. And I'm lucky to, to work with a, a leader like that who cares about their people to that degree. But the flight itself... I mean, I enjoyed the leg room and it was a fancy experience and it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I'm not a, somebody who's going to go order a bunch of drinks on the plane and take advantage of that feature, but a double or triple premium, it just didn't seem worth it to me as something to do in the future. I will say we traveled a bunch in Europe a few years ago on trains and the upgrade there to the little bit larger seat totally seemed worth it. It wasn't particularly expensive all that often. And I was always appreciative of that like slightly fancier experience even though the train itself was already smooth and comfortable and convenient. Yeah, train travel, it was so nice in Europe. It's cheap and it's relatively fast and it's just nice and comfortable. I wish we had more like that in the United States. Definitely in this part of the country, we, we barely have it at all. But yeah, it's uh, definitely not worth it to me to pay that huge upgrade when we're talking about flights in the United States. I mean, it's no fun to be in coach, but... I don't know. I guess I'm lucky I'm not claustrophobic or anything. I'm just happy to, you know, put on some headphones and either read or watch a movie for a few hours and the time just flies by. And then I've got like a thousand bucks in my pocket that I wouldn't otherwise have had. So it just doesn't seem like the best. You know, if you're taking a trip, there's all kinds of fun things you want to do, restaurants you want to eat at, sites you want to see. That seems like a better place to spend your money than a little more elbow room for a few hours on the flight. So one of my favorite things to do on a plane is actually, like if I'm flying someone like Southwest where there aren't assigned seats, is to try to figure out where I can sit and get an empty seat next to me. <laughs> I lose that game if I'm going to be in first class, right? Like You don't even get to play that game Yeah, in first they just class. take it away from you. Yeah. Well, I want to find, I want to figure out, is seat 10A going to be the spot that manages to avoid anybody sitting next to me and I get the, all the extra space at first class? Maybe a little bit, not the leg room, but all the, you know, lateral space. Whew, <laughs> man, I feel like a winner. That's true. Yeah, you can get a first-class experience if you're lucky enough to get an empty seat next to you. Do you remember that time we flew to Hawaii and we got an empty seat on the super long flight that we had? Yes, And I did. it was like the only empty seat on the plane. It was the middle seat between us or the, I think it was the window seat next to us. And we enjoyed the luxury there. That's good stuff when that can happen. Yeah. You never get those life wins if you already buy the more expensive luxury. <laughs> it's very true. So the other interesting thing about this clip, I think, is just how frustrated Annie feels being all alone back in coach, right? When all of her friends are up there kind of partying it up and enjoying first class. And I think that raises an interesting point about wealth disparity, because I don't think Annie would have cared one bit about being in first class if all of her friends had been back in coach with her, right? So I think it's just kind of shining a light on how much your friends and their wealth status affects your own perception of how successful you are and what things you are craving in life. Yeah, in any friend group, there will always be one person who is the lowest moneymaker, right? That's a mathematical reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose you could all have the exact same jobs and be all like basically the same, but 
there's always going to be somebody who is doing slightly worse than average within any decent size group. And they're always going to have this tug of war, like whether we're talking about buying an upgraded plane ticket uh, or uh, something as simple as where they should go to dinner. Like somebody may want to go to a, a place where they can certainly find an entree for less than $12 and somebody else may not want to go anywhere where you can't find anything for under 40 yeah, I mean, we see that with the, the Brazilian steakhouse that they go to, right? So it's such a common problem that fe- that so many people face with, you know, if you happen to be the wealthier friend, I think it's incumbent upon you to try to be more cognizant of that and not just like breezily expect people to be able to afford the same kind of things that you can afford. And if you are... The less wealthy friend who's on a tight budget, um, I think it's incumbent on you to be honest about your situation, right? Yeah, be upfront. Yeah, you can't just pretend and go along with it. Otherwise, it's as much on you as it is on your wealthier friends. You've got to say, I have limitations. If you guys want to go have a really fancy night out at, you know, some super expensive Brazilian steakhouse that's great. You guys do that. Why don't you call me when you're done? Maybe I can meet up with you for drinks afterwards or whatever it might be. And just be straightforward about what's going on in your life. Yeah. I think clear communication and just being respectful. I think everyone is in a different situation and no one should just assume that other people are comfortable with what you're comfortable with. And it's better to err on the side of being nice. And these are your friends. You should certainly try to make sure you're setting them up in a position where you're not, you're not giving them a terrible dilemma about do I refuse to spend time with you or engage in this activity together, or do I put myself in financial strife? Yeah, it can be a really difficult problem, but I think society makes it a much more difficult problem by the way that we tend to equate financial success with like just overall superiority, which to me just seems so crazy and backwards because a lot of times there's nothing inherently awesome about what people are doing to earn a big salary. There's a lot of luck that goes into it. There's a lot of like family connections that can go into these things. And just no matter what you're doing for a living, I think it's not a great idea to act morally superior because you're making more money or to see yourself as inferior if you're making less money than somebody else. I think it's just, you know, the facts of life that some jobs pay more than others and we should all just be open and honest about it and deal with it directly and not act like it's some sort of pity party for people who are making less or some sort of worshipful thing for people who are making more. You shouldn't put your friends in a position where they need to come to you and say, I I can't do this kind of thing that you're going to do. This show that you want us to go see or this outing you want us to go do together is just not realistic for me. And I either need you to subsidize it or I can't go like, just don't put someone in that position. Yeah. Be, I totally be better. Agree. Yeah. Very much agree. So let's move on to our next clip. This is happening at Maya Rudolph's bridal shower. She has been receiving gifts from some of her friends. She gets a very heartfelt, but inexpensive gift from her friend, Annie Kristen Wig. It's just kind of like all of her favorite little candies and things from places that she loves in Milwaukee, where they're from. It's a very personalized gift. It's very personalized and it's very sweet. And then she gets a much 
bigger, more outlandish gift from her wealthy friend, Helen. It is a trip to Paris. <laughs> and at this point, there has been so much battling and back and forth bickering between Kristen Wiig and Rose Byrne. And it finally just all comes to a head in this one moment when she gives her the trip to Paris. And this is Kristen Wiig's reaction. Are you fucking kidding me? Annie? No, Mom. Motherfucking Paris? Annie, what are you doing? I told you about Paris, Helen. I told you about this whole idea. Annie, calm no. down. Lillian, what are you going to go? You're going to go to Paris with Helen now? What are you going to... You guys going to ride around on bikes with berets and fucking baguettes in the basket of the front of your bikes? Oh, how romantic. Lillian, this is not the you that I know. The you that I know would have walked in here and rolled your eyes and thought this was completely over-the-top, ridiculous, and stupid. Look at the shower! Look at that fucking... Cookie! Did you really think that this group of women was gonna finish that cookie? Really? Oh, you know what? That reminds me, actually. I never got a chance to try that fucking cookie! How big is You think the cookie's what, like a square yard? I don't know. It is really, really big. Yeah, it's, it's a, a big, a it's cookie. a big old cookie. So Kristen Wiig then proceeds to go out and like bash the cookie to pieces. But she also ruins the chocolate fountain, which is like a like a real regular fountain? It is an actual stone fountain that <laughs> must weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds and it's overflowing with melted chocolate. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, the whole shower is like that, right? There's just all these extremely extravagant displays of wealth all over the place. I'm guessing this party cost thousands of dollars to throw. Oh, that, definitely. Yeah. Many, mul- yeah, lots. So Annie's response, Kristen Wiig's character's response here is definitely rude and completely out of line and and not the right thing to do to your friend when she's just received an extraordinarily generous gift. But I'll contend that Helen, the friend who gave that gift to Paris, might even be more rude. I mean, that is one of the just grossest displays of of wealth and inequality and just show-offiness that I can imagine. Like, who the fuck does that? I, Sorry, I, I, that just gets me going. I, like, how rude and inconsiderate is it to go flaunt your ability to deliver something like that in front of a bunch of other people who certainly don't have that? Your home and this party that you've thrown are enough of that on its own. Yeah. But the, the idea that you would give somebody a multiple thousands of dollars trip to Paris, um, in front of a bunch of other people. It just seems so tasteless. How hard would it be to to do that in private and you to go take this trip together and you can tell each other about it or whatever and you can share that she gave you this trip, but it's like a game of one-upsmanship that is just completely uncalled for and, and really disgusting to me. Yeah, I very much agree, especially the way she does it right after Annie's gift, you know. But yeah, doing something like that in public in front of a lot of other people who definitely could not afford to do the same does feel extremely condescending. So, but I think we do see Rose Byrne's character get a little more heartfelt in a later scene where she kind of breaks down and effectively says, like, this is kind of all I have. Like, she just doesn't have that much going on in her life. She doesn't seem to work. I don't think any of her wealth was earned by her specifically. It seems to to all come from her husband. Um, And I think it's kind of like, this is what I have in life. I have the ability to be flashy with my wealth and not a lot else. So, I I mean, that doesn't make me feel too sorry for her. It's sort of like, oh, poor little rich girl kind of thing. But 
it can be hard for some people to to cope with that kind of wealth. We we don't know anything about her background, whether she grew up with wealth like this, whether it's like, you know, kind of a kid in a candy store to have access to all of this all of a sudden as an adult. But I do think maybe there's a little bit more going on there that we don't get to see in the movie. But yeah, the way that she just upstages everyone and seems to take such delight in it, I kind of agree with Kristen Wiig. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it's pretty bad. So, I mean, as flashy gifts go, this is definitely on the extreme end. But there is just a, you know, a point of comparison we're thinking about that Kristen Wiig's character gives a sentimental gift and, and Helen gives a flashy gift. How do you feel about uh, sentimental versus flashy when it comes to gift receiving? There are holidays coming that I need to make sure I prepare for. (laughs) So we should, you and I haven't given each other gifts in a really long time. You just haven't earned them, Carla. (laughs) Does that mean you haven't earned any either? Oh, well, duh. Yeah. Uh Yeah. We, we don't give each other gifts. I can't remember the last time we did. It would have been many, many years ago, but we just, we also don't let each other want for things, right? Like if there's something I really want and you're like, well, go get it. And same, same with us, same with you. Like if you came to me and was like, I've been thinking about it. I really want this thing. We would be really excited for you to go get it together. Yeah. So. I'm happy that I no longer have to try to guess at something that you only kind of want. And then I uh, <laughs> overspend on it. Yeah. seems better this way. I mean, it is a genuine problem with gift giving, right? You are guessing unless you know it's something they want, in which case it's not as much of a surprise. So I don't know. It is definitely possible to give an amazing gift I've gotten a handful in my lifetime that have just been incredible and like, I mean, in some cases, like kind of life-changing, right? They're really awesome gifts, but on the whole, I am more, more a fan of something that like really means something to you. Um, I mean, even like a very loving and well-crafted card that somebody gives to you can be very, very meaningful as opposed to something that's just, you know, a thing that eventually will become obsolete and end up in a drawer somewhere, maybe. So, yeah, I think I would tend to err on the side of sentimental gifts overall. Yeah, sir, I mean, you just want it to be memorable. I think that's what I really want in a gift that I'm receiving or giving, right? Something that's going to stick with me for a long time and feel really special to me that you know, whether it's something I'm going to have for a long time or an experience that I'm going to remember or could... The best is when it contributes to an experience. I think back to the the Christmas before we went on our big hike, Christmas 2018, and I got a handful of gifts from a lot of different folks that have stuck with me because I have so many amazing memories of using those things on our big trip or big outing. It was just such a, you know, important thing in our lives that people were aware of and were able to connect with. And it was just, it was, it was I, maybe they're not a particularly sentimental gift necessarily. They're very functional gifts. But at the same time, for me, they're very sentimental. Yeah. And I do think a trip can be an incredible gift to give someone. It's flashy for sure, but it also can be very heartfelt and sentimental. I think for this movie, it's just the way that she presents it. It's She's basically like elbowing everyone else out of the way. Like, here comes the real gift, guys. Everything else you've given is just piddly compared yeah, to this. Get that other crap out of here. I mm-hmm. have a real gift to give now and uh, to show you up. That, that's what I don't like. Yeah, for sure. So her whole party is like that too, right? The, 
the opulence at this party, do you think there were more workers there or guests? <laughs> it might be like a one-to-one ratio. I mean, there were so many people milling about, holding trays, cleaning things. Well, there's, was... there's somebody to like get you on a horse to take you the final 50 feet to the house, <laughs> right? There were so many workers. It was, it was pretty crazy. It was wild. The craziest touch, though, has to be that she was giving away as party favors puppies i mean they were look they were golden retrievers right i think so i mean that's a good party favor they are lovely dogs i've never had a golden retriever but i've interacted with a lot of them they seem great but holy cow like i think that's just indicative of this lady's mindset that she's not even thinking about the cost of dog ownership right which is very substantial like Hey, thanks for coming to my party. Here's a 12 to 15 year commitment <laughs> of thousands of dollars per year. Like you're going to have to hire dog walkers and vet bills and do- the cost of dog food and like all of the accoutrements that come with having a dog. I mean, this is not a cheap endeavor. My question is, what if there were a couple of, I don't know, cat people who were at the party <laughs> and were not interested in taking a dog? I know Melissa McCarthy's character left with like six of them or something crazy like that. Nine? But she left with nine. Was it nine? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. What do you do with those leftover puppy party favors? I mean, who knows? Like, presumably, knowing this character, she got it from some really expensive breeder. Maybe she could return them to the breeder. But I don't know. The whole concept is just so ridiculous. Like, giving a, a pet of any kind, but especially a dog, which is very high on the commitment level scale of pets like that is a dangerous gift to give and of course you have to think about the dog and his feeling her her feelings too right like is this person actually going to take good care of this animal i mean it's a huge commitment we have a dog we've basically always had dogs we love them like crazy and we would never suggest that anyone just casually take a dog as a party favor like, this is just no big thing. Yeah, that, that lays the worst. Pretty much, pretty much. All right, so let's listen to our last clip where Annie is talking a little bit about her opening a business as a bakery and how it didn't go well. She's talking to her love interest in the movie, and he's trying to encourage her to get back into baking. I don't know, I just wish things were the way that they used to be, you know? I feel like her life is going off and getting perfect, and mine's just like... It'll turn around, you know. been hearing that for a long time. It's going to turn around, I just know it. You gotta bake. I don't really do that anymore, I've told you. It's Why? Of, I don't know, after it just went under, I just kind of stopped, I guess. It doesn't make me happy anymore. Just because you didn't make any money at it doesn't mean that you failed at it. Lost a lot of money. All my money. You're so good at it. Oh well, let's change the subject. No more baking, I'm done. I don't know how you just can't do it anymore. If I wasn't a cop anymore, I would still go out Arrest with the gun <laughs> and shoot people. Hopefully he's kidding. I assume he's kidding. I do believe so. So are you a failure if your big dream that you put your heart and soul and money into doesn't work out the way you want it? Because that's what... That's what that's all about, right? Yeah, well, I think the way he phrases it is especially well put. He says, just because you didn't make money at something doesn't mean you failed at something. And I do think he's very much right about that. There's a lot of reasons 
to do any particular thing, only one of them is to make money, right? If you get a lot of enjoyment out of something, if it makes you feel happy to, you know, be able to give like baked goods to your friends and family and share that with them, that's another reason to do it. And if it just, you know, makes you feel like calm and happy to be in your kitchen and create something out of nothing, I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing to do. However, we do have to be realistic, right? People have to put food on the table, they have to put clothes on their back, they have to put a roof over their head, they have to put gasoline in their car. Life is not free, and you do have to have some kind of venture in your life that does make you money. So I think he's dead on. You're not a failure at something just because you don't make money at it, but he's also not really painting a full and complete picture of what life looks like. And if she's not able to make money with the baking thing specifically, then you got to do something else to support your hobby of baking that you get a lot of enjoyment out of. Yeah, I would say she's a failure if she sticks with it, despite it not working for a really long time and continuing to borrow money and becoming a drain on everyone in her life in order to try to push this dream without doing new things to try to make it more successful. I think that'd be much worse. But I think his his attitude is right. You're not a failure. I think the world would be so drab and boring if nobody took chances and no one tried to do things that were a little bit different or that were not, you know, just a a standard job that you could go go get in an office somewhere and you know would guarantee you a salary. People having creative, wonderful ideas and clever businesses are a, a spice of life that it would be so sad if we didn't have. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I think it's just a balance between making sure you can take care of your own needs and you're not putting yourself in a dangerous situation, but also chasing your dreams at the same time, right? Not just prioritizing nothing but a paycheck. So when you and I have talked about this kind of thing, whenever somebody starts a business and it fails, I think we always get into a little bit of a debate about whether or not there was another way for them to be successful, right? We live in a world where there is an online marketplace in addition to the physical one. Do you think Kristen Wiig needed to give up on her dream? Do you think there's another way for her to keep going? Let's assume she still had a little bit of capital remaining and wasn't just unable to pay any of her bills, but could, could she, or should she have done something different? So when I see her talking about this business that she had, we see the actual storefront, which is now like all papered over and kind of falling down because she had to give it up. And apparently no one has rented that space since, which might be an indication that it's not like the best part of town to have a business in. But when I see that physical storefront and I think about the fact that she had a baking business my first thought is, you don't have to have a physical storefront to run that kind of business. She, in today's world, certainly, I think in 2011 too, for sure, she could have been running this business completely online. Now, maybe her kitchen at home wasn't quite big enough for her to be like making all of the things that she would want to sell, but she could have probably rented a big kitchen for a lot less money than like an entire storefront that looks pretty, right? Just like basically she's paying for counter space and oven space, maybe not even full time either, right? Maybe for just a few hours a day and she can get all the baking done. So there are ways to skin this cat. There are ways for her to keep this business going and not just give it up completely because she couldn't afford the rent anymore. 
And I mean, that's a huge expense. Like having a physical office is a really, really big expense. So cutting that out of her budget completely might have been enough to keep it going. I don't know. But it, to me, I think she should have tried that before completely throwing in the towel. Interesting. I don't know if an online bakery has the reach necessarily to, to get to people. Right? I mean, it's not something that she would be selling her wares to the whole country. It would be a local bakery sure. that uh, that really doesn't have a, a place to you know, get anything except for an online fulfillment or, you know, delivery of something. So it would be big orders, you know, big party type things rather than somebody dropping in for a fancy cupcake. Right. But eh, maybe, yeah, I think it's reasonable. I mean, I, I know personally of people who have done similar things and I mean, they can turn a profit. It's possible. I also remember we watched an episode of Shark Tank many, many years ago and they featured this little kid who was making homemade marshmallows which stuck in my memory because I love marshmallows. And he was uh, packaging them up and sending them all over the country and running it completely out of their home kitchen until it grew like crazy. And then they had to get a bigger space. So it definitely can be done. I'm not suggesting that it's like a snap and anyone can do it. It obviously takes a lot of skill and a lot of marketing savvy and a lot of luck. We should be honest about that. But it, it's it's not impossible. And she could have you know, throwing her hat in the ring and giving it a shot. I am skeptical that it would have worked out, but if it's something that she was passionate about, trying it in different ways is certainly a reasonable pathway to to give it her best effort for sure. Yeah. What I wonder though is if she's really into baking, right? They show her making this incredibly elaborate cupcake, right? Like one single cupcake. And I read on the internet somewhere that any serious chef would not have made just a single cupcake in the pan. They would have at least filled the other cups with water to ensure even baking and not warping <laughs> the pan or something like that, which blew my mind, I guess. That's what you do. I, who knows? You know how I make fancy cupcakes? I go buy them, <laughs> right? Um, but this cupcake she made was just crazy and beautiful and a, a work of art. And what I wonder is when you decide to go take something that's a passion of yours like that and turn it into a career or a job, does it lose the magic? Is it less fun? I think that's a very real concern. It's something that a lot of people talk about. It's, you know, I had this thing that I genuinely loved to do. And then as soon as it became an obligation, it lost all of its joy. I've never had any personal experience with that, but I can certainly imagine that it would feel that way to suddenly something that, oh, when I feel like sitting down and, you know, playing the piano or picking up knitting, those are a couple of my hobbies, or reading. If I like became a book editor and I were forced to sit down and read all day every day, I don't know, would it lose some of its joy? It might. So I think it's a very real possibility. But at the same time, it could also be wonderful for you, and I would hate for anyone to miss out on it if they just were too scared to even give it a chance. Yeah, I think it's silly not to try it if it's something that you really love. Surely you can find a way to make it wonderful. Um, it just may not be the traditional way that everybody imagined. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And, uh, you know, you could hopefully find ways to make your hobby different from the way that you monetize it. So, for example, if you're a book editor, maybe so we just watched that Julia Child show on HBO. Maybe you could edit cookbooks 
instead of editing fiction books that you love to read for fun, <laughs> right? Or maybe edit nonfiction books instead of the fiction books that you love to read for fun or vice versa, whatever your cup of tea is. So yeah, maybe you could find ways to make it feel different and unique from what you do for fun so that you can still preserve that sacred space that you get to get to enjoy. Well, I think if you have something that you're passionate about and you want to try to turn into a business, you should go for it and give it a give it a real honest effort. I think so too. I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And, you know, my mom was always fond of saying, make your work your play, I think is what she always liked to say. And that to me is such a beautiful idea. I know there's a lot of people out there who think that's crazy. Work is work and it always will be. But I don't know. There are ways to earn dollars that can be really fun. So if you find a way to do that, more power to you. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a job that didn't feel like play, at least to some degree. Yeah, well, you're the luckiest person on planet Earth, and we all know that. So, I, But I do think your outlook has a lot to do with it, whether it was you know, working at a grocery store or being a grader for a math class in college or working in a lab as an undergraduate research assistant or an engineering job. I, I don't know. There's a lot of fun in all of them, and you just have to look for it and find it and appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I've had some fun in every job I've ever had. It's just a question of the balance. I think if you can find a way to make your work your play, that's a pretty joyful way to live. So I would encourage it. Agreed. Well, I had fun rewatching Bridesmaids in preparation for this episode. It's a good movie. As Carla said, go check it out if you haven't seen it. And I think the big takeaway for me from this is be a good friend, right? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> there's There's so much money stress that everybody has in their life already. And we shouldn't add to each other's, to your, to your friend's financial stress by not thinking about them and the way that the decisions and the way that a group behaves uh, affects them. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a lot of things that the friends in this movie could have done differently that would have alleviated a lot of stress. So out there in the real world, you guys watch out for your fellow friends and speak up for the ones who are maybe struggling and on a tighter budget because it can be hard to be the one to speak up if you are that person. Agreed. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time. Take care.